0: I have a crazy, crazy love of things. I like pliers and scissors. I love cups, rings, and bowls, not to speak, of course, of hats. Oh, irrevocable river of things! No one can say that I loved only fish or the plants of the jungle and the field. It's not true. Many things conspired to tell me the whole story. Not only did they touch me or my hand touched them, they were so close that they were a part of my being. They were so alive with me that they lived half my life and will die half my death. I didn't write that poem. It's written by Pablo Neruda and it's called Ode to Things. My mother loved things. She had a wonderful capacity to make her home her nest. And wherever she was, she was by no means a wealthy woman. She would make her home a beautiful collection of things. I love things. We often have conversations about things beautiful things, ordinary things. But I'm concerned that we have become possessed by things. And not just things, but the acquisitiveness for experiences, for travel, for sport, for entertainment, for technology, for social media. And I'm concerned that, as Sarah said, we're locating our sense of self in what we have and what we can get. So my talk today is really just a way of contributing to this conversation, tapping the hoop of what we think is a very necessary and important conversation. Put very simply... And this is very simple. It seems that there are too many of us wanting too much. And the earth simply can't afford our expensive lifestyles. The crux of the problem, it seems to me, is that we're caught up in a myth. And it's the myth of limitless growth, limitless material or economic growth. And I think our perspective comes out of what is essentially a social construction, a social construction of the human person, not as human being, but as consumer. This needs to shift. Our economic and social policies must change before we destroy the planet. And what some of us are suggesting is that one way of making that shift is to move from what I would call a consumer consciousness to a contemplative consciousness. How are we to live? How are we to live? The poet farmer and conservationist Wendell Berry said, to live we must daily break the body and shed the blood of creation. When we do this knowingly, skillfully, wisely, lovingly, then it's a sacrament. When we do it greedily, clumsily, ignorantly, then it's a desecration and we are all diminished by it. So perhaps the question is, how do we live sacramentally? And what is a sacrament? Well, the classic definition of sacrament is that it's an outward, visible sign of an interior, invisible grace. But if we don't know the interior, invisible grace, then we can't live the outward sign of that. And what those of us who are engaged in what I would call, what others have called the work of silence or contemplative practice suggest is that it is that contemplative practice, work of silence, that opens us because it stills us and quietens us to that invisible grace, that deep interior grace that the human being finds its true location in. So today I'm going to speak a little bit about the problem and the practice of meditation as part of contemplative practice. Because I suggest that the socially, economically constructed human being as consumer is almost designed to distract us from that interior grace. Contemplative practice is the work of silence, and engaging in that work of silence by way of the practice of meditation for me and for others has an enormous capacity to shifting our consciousness such that we come to learn how to live. Contemplative practice clarifies our perception and reorients us towards reality. Contemplative consciousness recognises the wholeness of being which is reality. We're not separate fragments of creation. We only think we're distinct from the whole and it's our thinking which is the problem. The reality is that we are part of an undivided web of relatedness. Contemplative practice transfigures our thinking such that we see ourselves, we know ourselves, as being in relationship with the whole web of life. And it's in this way, I think, that contemplative practice enables a way of living more knowingly, skillfully, wisely and lovingly rather than in ignorance of who we truly are. I don't know what it's like for you, but when I walk through large supermarkets or the big, the big retail outlets that we have, the big malls, I can't help but think that we are living in great ignorance. Ignorance of the cost of the consumer economy in which we live and ignorance of our true identity. Identity. Acres and acres of plastic toys and clothing and built-in obsolescence, rare earth captured in the latest technology, various foodstuffs overwrapped in plastic. What was once wild and free and beautiful is now pre-packaged for our convenience and for the profit of shareholders. Which, whether we actually own shares in corporations or not, is all of us. How are we to live sacramentally? The distinguished Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson says The evidence is compelling. We need to redesign our social and economic policies before we wreck this planet. But I don't think we're going to change without a change of consciousness. The way we see, the way we figure things out, the place from which we locate who we truly are. There's no political will to change because we, the people, on the whole, don't seem to see that we can't go on as we are. Or perhaps we do, and that's why we're here today. Perhaps we do see that we can't go on as we are but we don't quite know how to change. And change to what? As Sarah said, the tentacles of consumerism are deeply inlaid and I know myself that when I confront myself with this reality I become more and more conscious of the way in which I source my identity in which I follow those desires which are fed daily. The ways in which my own perception is clouded and vision dimmed. The need to wake up is urgent. We need to wake up to the reality that we're human beings before we consumers, no matter how often we're told that, which is very often, We are human beings before we're consumers and that this astonishment of diverse and magnificent life we call Earth is not, in fact, one giant retail outlet for our pleasure and convenience. So how is it that we've fallen into this idea that we're essentially consumer? How have we constructed such an identity for ourselves? Because I think this identity is rarely recognised. In this age of the individual, we pride ourselves on having autonomy, the free will to choose. We see this as our right and we imagine that we choose freely. However, this may not be the case. In fact, generally, albeit unconsciously, it seems to me that we've been corralled, we are corralled into making choices by a much bigger system. The history of the consumer society some say goes back to the 1500s. Others say the 1800s. Certainly it went into overdrive shortly after World War II, which is when we really became quite intentional about fashioning ourselves as a consumer society. Listen to these words from a man called Victor Lebeau, who was a retailing analyst speaking shortly after World War II. He said this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. I think we've become fairly obedient consumers. (laughs) But as we hear those words, we can hear a kind of insanity We've been co-opted into becoming a consumer society. We have made consumption our way of life. And it's becoming a bit of a cliche to say that our new ritual, our new therapy, is to go shopping. The new altar is that of the economy, on which we worship the money god and sacrifice the earth. Our mimetic desires are fuelled hourly, to feed the furnace of the consumer economy, to maintain the holy text or founding narrative of the myth of endless material growth. This system of consumption has brought us to the rather horrifying point in time when of the materials flowing through the consumer economy, apparently only 1% remain in use six months after sale. That's how effective the sales campaign has been. But as I said, the earth simply cannot afford our expensive lifestyle. She's staggering under our weight. The UN's Millennium Ecosystem Report concluded, quote, that the pressures on ecosystems will increase globally in coming decades unless human attitudes and actions change. Geoffrey Sarks, in his book, The Commonwealth, Economics for a Crowded Planet, agrees, saying, one thing is certain... The current trajectory of human activity is not sustainable. So it's clear we really need to learn to do things differently and I'm sure that Peter will have more to say specifically about economic policy. I'm not an economist. I did train as a home economist but it's quite different. (laughs) (laughs) But um, from my very much layperson perspective it seems to me that the neoclassical economics and its myth of limitless growth that's presently driving us does have to change. Steady state theory, ecological economics, what are we to move into and how do we do that? How do we pull back some of those tentacles out of the consumer mindset? Certainly, I think we all need to wake up to what's really a very common sense fact, that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the ecology. Really, without a viable ecology, there is no economy. We are meant to be a society enabled by the economy, rather than driven by an economy as final purpose. But the political will and awakening will likely not happen without public pressure. And this is the point at which we need to wake up, to sit up and pay attention. So if you're not paying attention, (laughs) this is the point you do. (laughs) Because this is where we come to consider the role of contemplative practice to shape what I'm calling contemplative consciousness as a subversion of consumer consciousness. The quote that I read earlier from Victor Lebeau conflates ego satisfaction with spiritual satisfaction. We know, however, that the ego can only be satisfied when it's fulfilling its real purpose, its true purpose, of serving the true self. We can never be ultimately satisfied otherwise. The ego, uncoupled from its true function, always seeks, always grasps after more for its own gratification. More power, more attention, more stuff. And so we become really stuffed. Of course, this is just what the marketers want. Spiritual or true satisfaction comes paradoxically through detaching from those consumer hooks, through a kind of an emptying, an ungrasping, by which we find true freedom. And I think that that great... Theologian Michael Lunick knows that truth. True satisfaction comes through an emptying, an ungrasping. Contemplative practice enables that ungrasping. Socrates said, the secret of happiness is not found in seeking more but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. Contemplative practice, of which meditation is a part, clarifies our perception. We begin to see things differently. We come to see what really matters, what's worth having and doing. We come to see that our identity is given as gift, made in the image of God. We don't need to labour to build our identity through what we own and what we do. Rather, we can simply divest or allow ourselves to be divested of those many outer layers that weigh us down, that take so much energy to maintain. Our true identity is beautiful, simple, clear, So what is contemplation, contemplative practice? Contemplation is not something we can just decide one morning to go out and get, as we might go and get a coffee or a new car. Contemplation is a gift of grace. It's entirely gratuitous and beyond the bounds of our control or our income, and that really is its gift because we can't buy it, although, as Sarah said, I do wonder whether we're now commodifying and marketing it. Perhaps when we lived as a more seamless part of the whole ecology, there was no need for us to be so self-conscious about contemplation. It was simply who we were, who we are. Strictly speaking, the contemplative moment is imperceptible until after the moment, in retrospect, because in true contemplation, the self-conscious mind is suspended. In true contemplation, the self-conscious mind is suspended. So if we're talking about it, we're probably not in it. Contemplation takes place in the absence of self-consciousness. And in this, it's really the antithesis of contemporary culture. The kind of culture marked both symbolically and actually by something like the practice of taking selfies. And I'll just, while I'm here. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> what a powerful little thing this is. <laughs> What a powerful little distraction. A great enabler, but of course, unless we're conscious about it, it will rule us. It distracts us. So perhaps we might say that consumer consciousness is attention directed towards myself and what can be had for myself. How am I appearing? especially in relation to what everybody else has or looks like. Consumer consciousness, on the other hand, might be said to be limited... Uh, consumer consciousness is limited in its perception of the whole. It's grasping, self-referential and very noisy. You know, there's a lot of conversation at the moment about anxiety and I, I really think that anxiety is such a product of our incapacity to simply sit still in our own cell, in our own heart, in our own being. Consumer consciousness is noisy and anxious and grasping and self-referential. Contemplative consciousness might be said to be attention that's turned towards the other, towards the whole. It has infinite capacity, perceives the whole, is silent and non-grasping and it can't be self-engineered. And I think we're all somewhere on the spectrum. I don't want to fall into a dualism, this or that, but rather I think we're on a spectrum between what I call consumer consciousness and contemplative consciousness which cannot be self-engineered. However, we can dispose ourselves towards the gift of contemplation through attentive and responsive receptivity. And this takes practice. Meditation is a practice of paying attention in which we choose to give our attention to just one thing. And I'd like to use the very helpful image of the elephant not only for an understanding of the practice of meditation, but also for what we're talking about in terms of consumer consciousness. You're probably familiar with the image, which um, helps us to understand the purpose of saying the mantra in the practice of meditation. So in the the practice of meditation, as um, Sarah and I and others here practice, we sit down, we sit still, we close our eyes... We relax our body, and we repeat one word or one mantra. And the purpose of that mantra is like a stick for the elephant. Imagine an elephant walking through a marketplace on its way to the temple. And it's a marketplace that's full of delicious fruits. The trunk of that elephant is like our mind, The trunk will reach after the pineapple here and the mango there and the pawpaw and the bananas, all this delicious fruit on the way. But if we give the elephant a stick for the trunk to grasp, it will walk straight through to the temple, which of course is the image for contemplation. It requires of us the choice to give our attention to one thing, knowing all of the distractions, being aware of all of the distractions, but practising to give our attention to one thing, which over a period of time brings us more and more in touch with that stillness and silence which is at the heart of being. The practice of meditation is a pilgrimage towards other centeredness whereby paradoxically we come to know ourselves in the wholeness of being. The silent interior repetition of one word or phrase that we say continually is a practice that hones our attentive receptivity. The mantra is simply a way of turning our attention beyond what we can get for ourselves, a way of unhooking us from our busy thoughts, our desires, such that we begin to apprehend the still, clear and quiet centre at the heart of being, the centre that is everywhere. So the regular practice of meditation, as part of contemplative practice, over time shifts our perspective the focus of our attention shifts from the self-referential to the perspective that's found from within the true self, whose attention is always directed towards the whole. It's the perspective that looks out from within that centre of consciousness that dwells in our hearts and is silently loving to all. John Maine puts it this way. He says that when we are at prayer... When we are meditating, we must be like the eye that can see but cannot see itself. The eye that can see but cannot see itself. The significance of the practice of meditation and contemplative practice generally comes through the realization that we are not our thoughts, we are not our desires. And more than an intellectual realisation, this is a lived experience of interior liberty, of an ungrasping of that by which we have been driven, our compulsive thoughts, our manifold desires, the myth of endless material growth. And so we become freed from the tyranny of the marketer. We find we can walk through the shopping mall without being taken hostage. In other words, contemplative consciousness or perspective (coughs) awakens us to our true identity. We are not this socially constructed consumer whose purpose in life is to keep the great wheel of the economy growing larger and larger. Rather, we are human beings, created with the capacity for the simple enjoyment of the truth. We are human beings whose ultimate fulfilment can never be found in all the things we buy. Contemplative practice reminds us by grace such that we now no longer live to consume but rather grow into the fullness of our humanity. Of course, consuming requires producing. And I think Sarah may have more to say about that. And as Wendell Berry said, we must consume in order to live. We must consume in order to live. We must daily break the body and shed the blood of creation. But how do we consume without consuming ourselves and burning up the planet? How will we learn to break the body and shed the blood of creation wisely, skillfully, knowingly and lovingly. We must change our policies before we too go extinct. We must remember who we are and what life is about. So I'd like to conclude in a moment. um, But first I'll, I'll share the story that you may be familiar with from Anthony DeMello's The Song of the Bird, which is such a beautiful, simple way of encapsulating, perhaps simplistically, I don't know, what we're talking about. Um, It's the story of the contented fisherman. Do you know the story? It goes like this. A wealthy industrialist is walking along the beach when he sees a fisherman resting (coughs) by his boat. It's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, and he approaches the fisherman and says... Hello? What are you doing? And the fisherman says, I'm enjoying myself. (laughs) And he said, oh, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman replies, well, I've caught enough fish for today. And the wealthy industrialist says, well, if you were to go out and catch more fish, you could sell them and save up enough to buy another boat. And the fisherman says, oh, and what would I do then? Well... You could sell more fish and you could buy a whole fleet of boats and then you'd be a wealthy man like me. Oh, and what would I do then? Well, you could relax and enjoy yourself. (laughs) And of course the fisherman replies, what do you think I'm doing now? The moral of the story is, what would we prefer, material wealth or the capacity to enjoy life as it is. There is a very, very great need for us to change. And I very much hope that this conversation will be part of a greater stream of conversation and practical application of just how we might do that. It's happening all over the place. Where I come from... Uh, We have a very significant local food production movement. Uh, People are coming back to cottage industries. Uh, I think it's happening at the grassroots. But without macroeconomic policy, without the political will to change, we're really up against it. I think that when we allow ourselves a spaciousness of time rather than allowing ourselves to be gobbled up by the need to produce and consume, we discover an infinite capacity to simply be who we are and in that to know truth and to know true joy. I think Thomas Merton said... We were created for joy, not pleasure, and until we know the difference, we haven't yet begun to live. Contemplative practice enables that simple, simple joy of being. So, today I've spoken about consumerism as a social construction and ideology, and I've spoken briefly about contemplation and the practice of meditation. Meditation is free. The contemplative moment that it enables is pure gift and grace. Essentially, in meditation, we open ourselves to the spirit praying within us, the true source of fulfillment who cannot be bought or sold. Thank you.